This episode of the UAE Tech Podcast is sponsored by Kaspersky. Kaspersky is offering our listeners a discount using the promo code ALBAWEBER that can be used on any of Kaspersky's consumer products on kas.pr forward slash ALBAWEBER. One more time, that's kas.pr forward slash ALBAWEBER. This episode was recorded with the generous support of the podcast studio at the Rove Hotel in downtown Dubai. From our offices in Media City, Dubai, this is the UAE Tech Podcast, a product of Alba Weber Group. Podcast sponsors receive EDM promotion, distribution across all major podcast networks, and publication on Alba Weber Business. Gold and Silver sponsors receive a six-month Pro Plus account on Signal Presswire. Go to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash sponsor UAE Tech Podcast for more information. With the way that systems are structured now, there's always another way in. Uh, you can't you can't close them all off. And if you can, then the system's not really going to be usable in a lot of ways. It makes it so difficult to interact with and use that um, your employees and your customers and everybody else that's interacting with your system just don't want to do it because the user experience ends up being so bad. Um, but from from my perspective, what kind of opened my eyes with the decentralization aspect is it's kind of like what I was saying with those big honeypots or those big targets. When you have all of that information in one area, it's like robbing a bank. You know, you know the money's there. You know there's a lot of value there. You just have to get in and get out. And it's a lot easier to do that in a digital context than it is in a physical context. Mm-hmm. So uh, you don't need as much uh, resources or, or as many tools. You just need a few lines of code sometimes and, and a lot of patience in finding that entry point. Um, but the thing with a decentralized model for data sharing and transfer and things of that nature is it makes that target smaller because the organizations don't own and control your data anymore. They don't have your login. They don't have your social. They don't have your address. They don't have all these things that are private and valuable to, to hackers and other organizations. Um, they just know that you exist and that you're using their services. And that's really what changes it from a cybersecurity perspective is you can't go to a Google Cloud setup and break in and steal all of my information because you know there's millions of users' information there. You have to actually come to me, and am I, as a single individual, valuable enough for you to just want to target me and go through the trouble and the painstaking like process of trying to break into my systems? Um, so spreading that target out to make them a lot smaller decreases the, the appetite for it in a lot of ways, and I think that's really important for this space. Popularized in sci-fi movies like The Terminator, The Matrix, and others, is the concept of machine age, or what Matthew Yager and others refer to as the machine economy. We've seen this debate in regard to ethical AI or fairness and algorithms, but a new frontier is appearing in regard to centralization, walled gardens, and networks with a single point of failure. In a centralized system, there are fears automation could allow a Skynet scenario machines making decisions so complex that meaningful human control is no longer necessary or perhaps even possible. In a DLT or decentralized ledger system, information is no longer owned by a single platform. 
A malicious AI or non-state actor has no central location to hack, at least in theory. The attack surface is reduced from billions right down to one. Automation and DLT technologies are changing philosophy and ideation in the cybersecurity sector. But are decentralized systems really the future? Will these systems be permissioned or permissionless? And can decentralized ledger technology allow automated systems to scale into our economies and personal lives without compromising our safety, privacy, and security? Today we're talking with Matthew Yaga, Head of Mobility and Automation at the IOTA Foundation on the Machine Economy and Cybersecurity. Today we're talking to Matthew Yaga from the IOTA Foundation. Matthew, thanks so much for joining the UAE Tech Podcast. Thanks, John, for having me. So this is going to be a probably quite wide-ranging conversation because I was looking at your bio and there's so many things of relevance to the UAE Tech Podcast. You're working in strategy and solutions around distributed ledger technology. Uh, You're also working on projects that have relevance to the public sector, such as smart city infrastructure, the environment, energy systems, and of course, mobility-focused data industries and automation. So there's a lot to discuss today. Um, And I guess the best place to start might be, what is the IOTA Foundation? What does it do? And what is your interest in decentralization more generally? Yeah. um, So the IOTA Foundation is a nonprofit organization uh, that was founded in 2017. Uh, It's headquartered in Berlin currently. Um, and it has roots dating back to 2010 to 2011. Um, so the founders have been in the blockchain and distributed ledger space for quite some time since, since that era. Um, they worked and built the original proof of stake uh, blockchain, which is known as NXT. Um, they were very active in the Bitcoin and Ethereum circles very early on, and, and they're very close with you know, founders of those different organizations as well. So they have a really strong history and understanding the technology. Um, but one thing they notice is, you know, Bitcoin with proof of work, it's slow, it's got issues, but it's really good for what it does, which is it's a store of value. Um, but they wanted to understand if the technology could do more than that. Um, so that's where the proof of stake innovation came from. And they said, OK, this alleviates some of the problems, but it doesn't alleviate all the problems. There's still slow aspects of it. It doesn't have a lot of like utility when it comes to bringing something to a large amount of users. Um, so then they innovated and, and expanded the initial founders to, to what we had uh, over the last few years and have created a completely new structure that takes the first principles of what a blockchain is, uh, but it simplifies it and it focuses on scalability as the utmost importance. Um, and that's really important because the way that we look at decentralized technologies is they're, they're there to make an impact. Like if you look at the Nakamoto papers and everything, it's like, how do we get rid of some of the control over these systems and make an impact on everybody? That's one of the underlying themes of what the technology was really created to do. Uh, And we think that if it's not scalable enough to affect 8 billion people, then it's not worth it. So it needs to be something that can actually scale to having every single person on the planet be able to use it so that can really have the impact that it can. Uh, and if you're not looking at it to, to scale it to that point, then 
from our perspective, the technology isn't going to be able to do what it needs to do. And it's just going to stick as a, a proof of concept for it, its entire life cycle. Right. That's, that's really interesting because I mean, on two levels, we hear about blockchain a lot here in the UAE and globally, but I think the, the underlying discussion on decentralization and why that's important and, and the kind of ideas Nakamoto um, was originally writing about are, are something that are, are less discussed. And the other issue on this is that, you know, um, I have friends and I myself and have been working on blockchain applications that look really good on paper and a lot of, you know, programmers and coders are interested in them, but you often get to that problem, as you said, how can we get 8 billion people using this and understanding it and seeing it as something that they want in their lives when you have so many walled garden proprietary platforms and apps that are, are really giving, you know, users what they want for now. And, and I think a lot of users on the internet don't really understand why a decentralized platform for them might be better when, you know, Facebook and Netflix work just fine. Thank you very much. You know, why should I change? <laughs> that's um, arguable. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's definitely arguable. Um, but I guess, you know, just starting on that very general level, um, because I also saw Satim Berners-Lee um, recently, I think at the start of the year or the end of last year, um, came out and said, you know, the web is broken. We really need to change it. Mm -hmm. Why Why are there an entire community out there at the IOTA, IOTA Foundation and others looking at this problem and looking about decentralization and really trying to change the way we store and house data? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's a really good point uh, and, a, and a great question to kind of talk about the culture of the foundation. And it's something I've really come to just admire and have a lot of passion about. And one of the things you notice in our community and inside the foundation as a whole is there's just a really strong passion for actually making an impact um, and building things that work. So it's like you said, there's a lot of really interesting things out there in the space, uh, but what the point is, is the hard part. They say, oh, look, you can do this and there's money and there's value and look at how much money I've made. I'm a Bitcoin billionaire or what have you. Um, but for the average person that didn't get in when it was $10 or what have you, what's the point of the technology? Um, and pretty much everyone in the foundation has had a similar path to, to I and to the founders where they see the technology, they get interested in it, but they want a little bit more. Um, and so we've really come together to create that and to, to really all work together to do more with the technology that can have such a high impact. Right. And I mean, there are lots, lots of arguments around the applications of uh, a blockchain and decentralized ledgers. But I, I know looking at your, your bio and, and some of what you've, you've written about and some of the interviews that you've had, that you've focused a lot about data, policy around data and data management. Why is that? Yeah. So um, I guess I can give a little bit of a, a background on myself, if that is appropriate at this time. Yeah, please. Yeah, no, that'd be great. Yeah, so I, I have a pretty diverse background, um, mainly in the networking and cybersecurity and, and cyber operations field. So uh, I'm U.S.-based, uh, living in Austin, Texas, and I was a U.S. federal government uh, before I came to the foundation. I did eight years at the National Security Agency where I did cybersecurity, cyber operations planning, uh, things of that nature. So I really got to understand networks from the ground up and how they work, the different vulnerabilities with them and how to take advantage of it. 
Um, and then after I got out of the military uh, from eight years uh, or with eight years in, I went to the Department of Defense Cyber Crime Center where I did digital forensics. So then I got to focus on the endpoint security aspect. How, how do we actually break the device? How do we break into a laptop or a phone or what have you? Um, and then what kind of data can we get from it? So I got a really holistic picture of what it all looks like. Um, and I kept seeing the same things of, you know, oh, there's a bug, there's a zero day, there's, you know, it gets targeted for so long or longer if no one finds it and, and publicizes it and it can lead to catastrophic failures. And um, there's these giant honeypots of data and personal data in these centralized systems where it's a huge target. You, you see it with solar winds and recent attacks and things of that nature where someone breaks into a credit union or whatever and gets millions of users information, their addresses, their credit card numbers, their birthdays and socials and all these different things. And then they put them on the open web or sell them to the highest bidder. Um, and I really just, when I was in that space, I started thinking there's gotta be a better way to do this. Uh, and seeing IOTA kind of opened my eyes to that because I had started with research in the space and trying to understand it. And then I had that same journey of how can this do more? Um, and IOTA really opened my eyes to that because it focuses on that scalability aspect. Uh, it's extremely energy efficient. There are no fees to operate on the network. And then you can send data or you can send value. With almost everything else in the space, maybe if not everything else in the space, of course, I don't know every technology, um, but from my understanding, we're the only ones that focus on decentralizing data at its root and from where it's generated and IoT use cases and smart city use cases and things of that nature. And then making it secure, making it structured well, uh, allowing users and organizations to share it and, and do a lot of really interesting things and just build a different system. So what you reference with Tim Berners-Lee and, and the web is broken and that kind of stuff is very much in line with what we see and what we're trying to achieve. Yeah, and you've had a really interesting perspective on, you know, a lot of the changes, a lot of the changes in cyberspace over the past decade, both, you know, working for the U.S. government and then moving into a foundation like this. And based on what you just said, there's almost three levels to this. You know, there's the the backdoor exploits, which, you know, Edward Snowden and, and many others have, have written about. Um, and then you've got the issue of, of cybercrime and how to create s systems that, you know, stop people from going in and stealing millions of users' data. And then, of course, you have, you know, the, the, the other level, um, which is the Sir Tim Berners-Lee and others level that elements of the, the legal internet, the, the surface internet, many of the apps that we use every single day, are not privacy safe. They are in many ways, you know, hacking or data mining our data. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's part of the business model. And is that okay? And, you know, for me, and I think a lot of other people, that's, that's probably not okay. So I think based on what you've just said, I think, you know, we can talk a bit about the cybersecurity aspect of this. And then maybe we can talk a little bit about, you know, some of the, the public sector applications. You know, we can talk a bit, a, a bit, a bit about smart, smart cities and, you know, or, you know, infrastructure and, and energy and that kind of thing. And then I think towards the end, automation and, and, and DLT and decentralization is also a really interesting conversation that we've never had on the podcast. But just rewinding a little bit to, to, to think about, you know, cybersecurity and, and the current, 
internet as, as you just described it and the future internet that is based on decentralized technology. Is a decentralized network safer? Is it harder to hack? Is it better for users? And if so, why? Because, you know, I've had conversations with some cybersecurity experts who have argued that every system is fallible and that, you know, whatever kind of blockchain you're using, there will always be human psychology involved and there will always be malicious actors. So what's your take on that? Yeah, no, I mean, that's that's a very common mentality in the, the cybersecurity space. And I completely agree with that. With the way that systems are structured now, there's always another way in. Uh, you can't You can't close them all off. And if you can, then the system's not really going to be usable in a lot of ways. It makes it so difficult to interact with and use that um, your employees and your customers and everybody else that's interacting with your system just don't want to do it because the user experience ends up being so bad. Um, but from, from my perspective, what kind of opened my eyes with the decentralization aspect is, is kind of like what I was saying with those big honeypots or those big targets. When you have all of that information in one area, it's like robbing a bank. You know, you know the money's there. You know there's a lot of value there. You just have to get in and get out. And it's a lot easier to do that in a digital context than it is in a physical context. So uh, you don't need as much uh, resources or, or as many tools. You just need a few lines of code sometimes and, and a lot of patience in finding that entry point. Um, but the thing with a decentralized model for data sharing and transfer and things of that nature is it makes that target smaller because the organizations don't own and control your data anymore. They don't have your login. They don't have your social. They don't have your address. They don't have all these things that are private and valuable to, to hackers and other organizations. Um, they just know that you exist and that you're using their services. And that's really what changes it from a cybersecurity perspective is you can't go to a Google Cloud setup and break in and steal all of my information because you know there's millions of users' information there. You have to actually come to me and am I as a single individual valuable enough for you to just want to target me and go through the trouble and the painstaking like process of trying to break into my systems? Um, so spreading that target out to make them a lot smaller decreases the, the appetite for it in a lot of ways. And I think that's really important for this space. Um, and then the other aspect is not just decreasing the appetite, but making a more secure system. So a really easy example is an event log. Um, when anything happens on a system, whether it's an individual system or a network or what have you, uh, if it's designed appropriately, events get logged. Whatever happens, who logged in, what they change, things of that nature. When you're targeting a system, one of the most important aspects is cleaning your tracks. So you go into a centralized system, you know where the event logs are. You can go in, you can clean them, you can make it look like you were never there. And they don't know you just took millions of uh, users' information. When you do something as simple as decentralizing an event log, it makes it tamper-proof. So they can't come in and clean their tracks anymore. So then you have accountability and you have oversight. And if, de if you just start with decentralizing something very simple like that and then scale it out to the system as you understand it more, it makes a very easy system to target very difficult. And it can be a very light way and efficient way of doing it in steps instead of having to have a big ask or a lot of expense to do it. Well, thanks a lot for that summary. Um, yeah, that seems very logical and it makes sense. Um, getting a bit more technical, there's also a reference to global initiatives to create data and metadata standards. 
mm. um, on the hardware and software level. Now, what does that mean and how difficult is doing something like that? As you said, you want to make it scalable, right? You know, you want to create policies and, you know, SOPs and best practices around this, which I guess is, is one of the reasons for working with and, and you know, a, a foundation like IOTA. How is that, how's that going and, and what are some of the, you know, really detailed technical challenges? Yeah, so it's it's really interesting to see how this is playing out in the space. Um, and, you know, with with the crypto space and the blockchain space in, in general, there's a lot of tribalism. You know, people find the technology that they like and they stick to it because they become emotionally invested in it. And there's a lot of benefit for them to continue to push the one that they really care about. Um, but what really changes things and, and it goes against our standard uh, mindset of like capitalist structures and, you know, getting the max out of every service that you're enabling is once we actually, for us to create these standards, we have to have more collaborative methodologies. So these processes can be a little slow, but we're working with organizations like Dell and a, a number of others to figure out what these standards and these metadata standards look like. Uh, and we have projects like Alvarium, which you, you can look up that uh, we've, we're doing with Linux Foundation and others um, that are really focused on this, on how do we create new ways of standardizing data and control and ownership and sharing, because a lot of that is, hasn't been done yet. Uh, there's been different standards around different use cases and industries, but going to that level from a decentralized perspective hasn't really been done because it hasn't been possible until you know the last five or so years. Um, so it's a big ask, but it really requires finding the right partners and bringing them together in a way to where they can work together and, and figure out what that standardization looks like and build consortiums and things of that nature. And not just build it to create standards, but build uh, these consortiums to actually build the standards. Because you see that a lot in the space too, organizations that are only creating standards and they're not actually building anything. Um, and we think that if you're not building it while you're creating it, then you don't know it's going to work. Yes, that, that's, I mean, it's a slightly controversial point, but, mm -hmm. you know, that's one of the arguments sometimes about that entrepreneurs are making in the European Union. It's, you know, guys, let's, let's get creating, let's get building stuff and then we can do the regulations. Like, you know, why are we doing it the other way around? Um, but there, there does seem to be three levels there because, you know, you have um, the different protocols and, and the different blockchain applications and the di kind mm -hmm. of different schools of, of, or salons of, you know, programmers and, and um, evangelists of, of, of different systems. And then you have the, the kind of global question of, okay, how is this going to work across jurisdictions, mm -hmm. across borders? And then you also have the kind of technical infrastructure level. So there is a lot of policy and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot, that's a, that's a big ask. Um, yeah. And one uh, organization know, is never going to own all of it. So right, <laughs> you have to right. collaborate to make progress. Right. And I, I suppose, you know, one of the interesting things about the history of the internet is, is relatively speaking, it happened very fast, beginning with, you know, defense and universities and then then moving out like that. But what do you personally see as the trajectory for, for kind of distributed ledger systems like that, you know, be they closed or open systems? How do you mm. think that will really work? Because as you, it sounds like based on what you said, it's about building stuff. You know, if you build stuff that works, and it has an application, then, you know, people will adopt that system. But how do you see that working really on an international level? Yeah, so on an international level, it, it's really about um, 
figuring out what you as an organization or a protocol are good at and focusing on that, but then also knowing what's needed from the big picture and finding the organizations that can fill in the blanks that you're not capable of doing. From the IOTA perspective, that's something I think we've gotten very good at. Uh, we work with like the object management group, uh, which is a standards creation body. Um, and they're going through and helping us standardize our protocol and actually create legitimate standards on it. Uh, but that's not a huge ask from our side because we get to focus on building it. We speak with them regularly. We have a head of standards that interacts with them directly and he takes everything we're doing and presses into that. So you don't need a huge task force to actually go forward and build that, that capability or that standardization. You can do it by just having a little bit of input and figuring out the right way to do it and working with the organizations to alleviate what your focus needs to be versus what their skill sets are. Right. And I guess another aspect there in terms of adoption is there are kind of, there are global shifts taking place. So here in the UAE in Dubai, um, there've been, you know, laws passed to ensure that most government services are functioning on the blockchain. If, if that's viable within the next 10 to 20 years, you have a blockchain government initiative, you have a ministry of artificial intelligence and blockchain. So you almost have a system here in which governments rather than the private sector, is is one of the leaders in pushing out the adoption of this technology and experimenting with, you know, supply chain solutions, logistics at the ports, IoT systems, and all that kind of thing. Um, and I know you have referenced this as well, you know, how these technologies will apply to the public sector. So can you give us a quick kind of background to some of your work on that and, and some of the things you think are the most interesting uh, developments right now? Yeah, so I mean, you highlight a really good point too with uh, how it's operating in UAE versus how it's operating in other areas. And what you're seeing with the UAE is they're making the investment to figure it out. Um, they know that it's risky, but they also know that if they're not making the investment, then they're never going to get the answers they need. And I think that's the right direction, figuring out how do we create regulatory environments or sandboxes or innovation zones or whatever you want to call them to test these new technologies and guide them in a way that adds transparency to the government process and allows the, the citizens of the respective nations to trust their government because they have more insight and understanding of it. Um, and this is something that's difficult for some and not as difficult for others. Uh, UAE has a, a good history of a rapid innovation and they have a lot of uh, different smart city and, and um, uh, you know, just industrial capabilities that showcase that. And there's other areas like Singapore and South Korea that are very aligned with that as well. Um, and then some cities like some of the, the larger uh, or older nation states, uh, they're trying to figure that out. But you see like the European Union and Commission are coming out with very large amounts of grant funding to incentivize innovation in this space so that they can understand it and then they can foster it in their areas. And you're starting to see that here in the US as well. Um, but it's also a balancing situation where you know, there's older leaders or, or less te technically savvy leaders in a lot of areas and they need to understand it first. They're taking the time to understand it. And then now that they're starting to understand it, we're seeing more funding and more um, fostering of these types of environments come out. And why do you think the public sector is so interested in this technology? Is it purely, you know, cut down on costs, speed, um, security? Is that purely it? Or, or, the, or are the other, apl are there other applications that are less obvious? 
Hmm. So there's a lot of different ways I can go with that question. I'm trying to think hmm. about what the best one is. Um, what really comes to mind first is just trust. Uh, and that's one of the things that comes from these permissionless blockchain hmm. capabilities is when it's done with a government perspective, it can give a lot of transparency into their process and, and insight from a public view. Wow. Uh, and that can just yeah. ena enable trust directly in how these organizations are interacting. Right. Um, and you see that with data and private institutes too. You know, different mobility providers might not want to share their data with other mobility providers because they're worried they're going to let go of proprietary information and it's going to hurt their bottom line. But now that wow. they're understanding, oh, you don't have to release all of it you can release some of it and you can share openly on things that you agree upon that's starting to open up uh, and it's enabling them to say, I don't need to own this data anymore. And you don't need to own this data anymore. We can use this decentralized system and we don't have to worry about who owns it anymore. And that allows us to start to collaborate more openly. So there's less risk it mitigates it. Uh, and there's just more capability to enable trust between organizations and individuals. So, so trust and, and data sharing without losing kind of your core IP rights. Yeah. Um, yeah, really interesting. What about, cause you've also referenced smart cities and critical infrastructure, um, things like, you know, energy security, food security. Why are those things of relevance? Yeah. So there's a lot of um, interesting points in that space, depending on where you're looking uh, there's a lot of risk with upgrading infrastructure to newer technologies because, I mean, if you think about the critical inf uh, energy infrastructure for a nation state or a nuclear facility or things of that nature, if you're implementing new technologies that increase the number of vulnerabilities in the system, there's a huge risk that comes along with that if uh, an enemy nation state or a bad actor group or whatever wants to target it. Um, so you need to be very, very careful about the steps that you take. And infrastructure is the thing that we understand as individuals. You know, I see the stoplights. I, I see the different aspects of tolling and, and payment solutions from a transportation infrastructure aspect. I get my energy from a centralized or semi-centralized energy production system. Um, so how do we continue to not have a negative impact on our quality of life, but also alleviate a lot of that risk with updating infrastructure to be more efficient um, and less wasteful and more sustainable? So there's a lot of focus in the smart city and the critical infrastructure area on how we do that, but there's also a lot of risk if you get it wrong. Right, and, and connected to that um, from an economic viewpoint, we've had previous episodes where we've looked at 5G, where we've talked about how automation in particular could transform um, a city like Dubai. And by automation, we're not just talking about, you know, automated cars or driverless vehicles we're talking about you know automated delivery by robots mm -hmm. or um, you know key key elements of the economy essentially being automated out to, to in various ways so one of the questions there is that you know there's already a big discussion on automation but your work seems to be also combining automation with distributed ledger technology now you've already mentioned one application there which is you know private organizations sharing data standards and and data that's not proprietary between themselves but why is dlt important to the future of automation yeah no that's a really good question and that's one of the things that we really pride ourselves on from the the iota side is we look at it from the bottom up and not the top down so where is the data generated and how is it used 
uh, and we're really focusing on one, once you decentralize and allow the data to be shareable and secure, what can you do with it? How do you create utility around it? Um, so that's really where automation comes into play. And when you're thinking about automated delivery and drones and delivery robots and uh, like automated buses and things of that nature, that's a lot of decisions that need to be made in a very timely manner. And there's no way that we as people can manage all of that decision-making. So it comes back to that trust question. How can we build something that the machines can start to manage and we can trust that they can manage it and the data that they're getting is what they need to make those decisions. Um, how do we build those frameworks? So now that we have the data and we can decentralize it and we can make it available and share it very efficiently, um, the level of insight and automation that comes from that becomes very intuitive. It's not a heavy ask. You don't need huge data centers to be able to manage and enable that type of automation. It's something that can be a lot more fluid and organic. Um, because once the, the data is tamper-proof and it's getting secured from the point of creation, the machines can inherently trust the data they're using to make their decisions. Whether that's, you know, did you run out of toilet paper and do I need to order it for you? Or uh, is there an energy overlap and we need to uh, balance the grid in a different way because of a situation that happened? That's interesting because, you know, incorrectly, clearly, I always assume that uh, maybe at the moment, at least, information on the blockchain would actually slow down the input and the outputs because, you know, you'd, you need a permission from, from the user and you'd need to go through a blockchain system. Whereas if you're on a proprietary walled garden model, you know, where the data access is perhaps less restrictive, you know, it'd be much easier for a machine to read that and access that data. Mm -hmm. So, but what you're saying actually suggests the opposite. If the protocols are correct, if, um, you know, the systems are built correctly, DLT can actually speed up the process at which machines make those decisions. Yeah, but there's certain requirements for that to happen. Not every DLT can do that um, right. because it really has to have both aspects. How does how do you secure the data and make it available without having a fee structure? Because machines aren't going to pay $5 one minute and $20 the next minute to access data to make decisions. It wouldn't. It would clog up the whole system exactly like you're saying. So you need something that doesn't have fees. You need something that's energy efficient so that it can operate directly on those machines. Uh, and you need something that can have that level of scalability and low latency to where the data gets where it needs to go uh, with no single points of failures uh, by whatever means necessary so that those machines can reliably make the decisions they need to make. And that's what we call the machine economy. Uh, and that's what we are enabling with IOTA. IOTA really is, how do we take this data? How do we create utility? How do we build these levels of autonomy and become this machine economy or what the vision of the machine economy is trying to accomplish? That's fascinating. And I think, you know, I think this conversation has been super interesting because I think our listeners can understand what DLT is. I think they can understand the issues and the applications. And mm -hmm. I think they can now understand the role of IOTA as well. But the machine economy, I've never heard that phrase. Can you just give us a quick introduction to, to what you mean by that? Yeah, so there's, there's a, a historical perspective from Terminator. Uh, and then there's the more enlightened perspective of what we should actually be building. And you see this, this in the AI space a lot about ethical AI and how do we build something that's tailored for our best interest. Um, so with the centralized technologies having the single points of failure and everything, allowing machines to make the decisions that you see uh, that, that we want to couldn't very easily result in that Skynet or matrix type of situation 
because they can, can find all of those points of vulnerability and they can take advantage of them much more efficiently and quickly than we can and we won't be able to respond quick enough. So there's a, a negative way it can go depending on how the system structured. But by taking it and allowing us as individuals to own our data and have more control over who accesses it, revoking that control, doing things like decentralized identities for devices, organizations, and people, uh, which we call the case for a unified identity, um, and then doing embedded access and control mechanisms, you can allow this new economy of not just how do we interact as people, but how do the systems that we touch every day, whether it's you know this podcast or my cell phone or driving to the grocery store, how do those systems interact with each other and how can we enable them to interact in a way that changes our quality of life uh, and makes everything just a little bit better every day? Yeah, and I think you've spoken to that in a recent interview. Um, I was reading something where you basically talked about the issues upcoming in your industry. And some of what, to summarize some of it, it was interoperability between permissioned and permissionless DLTs for business applications, the connection of IoT-focused DLTs to cloud-hosted DLT environments, mm -hmm. and the verification of key insights using DLT for consumer-facing solutions. So we've got three things there, really. Permissioned and permissionless DLTs, DLTs on the IoT, and also cloud-hosted DLT environments, which I've never heard of. Can you give us a bit of a bit of background on what's happening there? Because it really does look like an alternative infrastructure that is familiar to some extent, you know, cloud-hosted DLT environments. But obviously, there's a, there's a lot there. There's a lot to build out there. Um, and we're really talking about a completely new infrastructure um, mm -hmm. for a lot of, of digital activity. Yeah, no, for sure. And, and I mean, you can see the rule of three is coming in heavy uh, during this conversation. We found right. a lot of those structures. <laughs> but um, that, that's one of the things with IOTA versus other blockchains where we're really focused on IoT and edge. How do we get the data where it needs to go and all these different things we've talked about up to this point. Um, but to do that, you have to have a very lightweight structure. So I can run a node on my smartphone. I can run a node on a Raspberry Pi which is very efficient and that allows a, a low entry point to get onto a network and secure data and enable these different levels of autonomy. But we don't do everything. We're really just focused on creating utility and security around decentralized data. And then the value aspect of our network is there when the data incentivizes the transmission of value. So if I wanna send a few thousand data transactions and then at some point that enables a digital service, there's that but there's a lot of other blockchains that are more in the traditional perspective of what a blockchain is that they need heavy infrastructure to operate. So connecting them on a cloud level enabled diff and enabling different types of digital services is something that I think is really gonna start to happen this year. Um, I mean, we've seen conversations between our founder, Dom, and the founder of Cardano, where they're saying, hey, how do we build bridges? Uh, and we've had conversations with other blockchains around the same thing, where they do things that we don't, and we do things that they don't. And we're starting to understand that now. And we're starting to understand how they can create services and they can run a more cloud-focused blockchain that can have that level of availability. And we can get the data to them to make different decisions and services around. So bridging those two capabilities and those unique selling points of the different technologies does exactly what you say. It creates a new type of digital infrastructure, whether it's economic and value-based, whether it's data-based, um, but in the end, it allows us to have more control and it allows us to scale out the, the economic value of the system to more people in more areas. 
that is interesting. And, you know, just going back a little way, you discussed kind of the, the Terminator and the Matrix running through the history of the internet. You know, there's always been cyber utopianism on the one hand and then kind of dystopia on the other hand. And if you look at the early founding of the internet, there was so much hope for how it would change politics and culture and society and economy. And obviously some of that has come true, but some of it definitely hasn't. And, you know, there's also this debate about, well, will the blockchain really go the same way? We've had some people on the series like John McAfee, who've said, this is the future of civilization. Um, you know, this is the way to solve many of the problems that we have in our world, in financial, government, political, and military systems. One argument, it's an interesting argument. And then we've also had others who've said, well, you know, this is an iteration and it serves business interests. And there's, there's definitely uh, a lot to be very optimistic about there. But for example, permissioned DLTs, right? So presumably that's a DLT that exists within an organization and, you know, helps their systems run, but isn't necessarily accessible to the outside world. Now, what's to stop, you know, a future internet or grid or network simply consisting of walled garden DLTs that really aren't too difficult different from the kind of the model we're looking at on the internet right now, a proprietary model that not everyone can use or, or have access to. Um, you know, same with, with cloud-based environments. You know, what if you're suddenly your, your cloud hosting, you know, evaporates or, you know, you're kicked off your cloud platform? How did the blockchain community talk about these things or is it just you know, real optimism and, and a real sense that, no, this time we'll get it right. Yeah, so, so I think the, the only way that we can realize what you're talking about there is it has to come down to us as individuals. Um, what you're seeing with the, the permission systems is that's the business opportunity of understanding how do businesses create better systems for themselves that make them more secure and allow them to interact with their business partners and their customers better um but permissionless is the requirement for that future you can't have permission systems that interconnect with each other uh, because once you have a, a barrier to entry that a permission system creates it also allows organizations to dictate who gets to come in and you can see that as essentially a, a digital dictatorship in a lot of ways um, where they say no we don't want you on our platform or you're not good enough you we don't want that to happen and that's the difference really from a, a human level of a permission system versus a permissionless. There's a lot of benefit of a permission system. I'm not, I have nothing against them. There's a lot of instances of common open permissionless blockchains being used in permissioned instances. Um, but to realize the impact of what this technology can make, it's going to take both. It's going to take permission systems. It's going to take them bridging to permissionless systems and then instances uh, like what you're seeing with the the european blockchain service infrastructure it's a they're calling it a public permission system where it's permissionless but they're dictating who who controls the infrastructure but not who has access to the services so there's going to be a lot of hybrid um, capabilities that we're going to discover as we start to interconnect these different types of technologies Right. And these discussions are increasingly moving to, you know, globally moving to the center of how everyone is thinking about the future of government and the future of economics. Um, so I guess, you know, 
two more questions before we let you go, Matthew. And and the first is on economics. It seems like automation, which we've been told is critical to the future of the economy. From your perspective, DLT and, and decentralized technology is will play a big role in that. What really, you know, is is the economic benefit there? Why is DLT going to be so important to the automation economy? Hmm. That's a really good question. Um, I think it goes back to that whole, how do we provide benefit to more people situation? And when it comes down to automation and, and really scaling it out, you want it to have an impact on everybody. Uh, you want it to create, you know, better delivery systems and more efficient systems. And there's this idea of a, a zero marginal cost society, which you may be familiar with by uh, Jeremy Rifkin, um, where he talks about these types of things. As automation increases, the cost of production decreases. Um, so we can get you know, better vehicles for cheaper. We can get higher quality things directly to a door in a shorter timeline. Um, so there's that kind of economic perspective of how do we continuously get more uh, efficient and create more benefit for more people. Um, and I think that's a big part of it. And to do that at scale requires something like a permissionless DLT that decentralizes data, at least from our perspective. Right. That makes sense. And I guess there's also this emerging debate about, you know, monopoly practices and the idea that single corporations could have access to so much of your everyday life. Um, so there's there's a there's a, an element really which isn't economic, which which you've referenced earlier as well, which is kind of trust and how our economies are models and you know our societies and who really has control. Is it you know um, the, the 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 government entity or the corporation providing that surface mm-hmm. service, or does the user still retain you know some some of the access points and and some of the inputs and outputs? Um, yeah. And as as we've also discussed, that discussion is no longer based in any one country or part of the world. You've you know mentioned once or twice the European Union, so not any single, not Italy or France or you know Portugal, but the oh. European Union as a whole, right? And I think a lot of these debates are going global, principally because of technology, because you know we're having this call on Zoom and. Uh, this mm-hmm. podcast episode and we're creating a discussion that is relevant to, to people here in the UAE and overseas. And so technologies such as automation and DLT are becoming increasingly critical to the world we all live in. Mm-hmm. Now, your work with IOTA Foundation, you know, how do you see some of that work as really an early stage um, way of, of perhaps building the future building blocks of a, a, the economy in the future, you know, um, elements of how government works in the future and really a kind of consensus between people, regardless of what country they live in. In a way, we're accelerating not just digitalization, but globalization. And I think that's also one of the things the UAE as a global hub has always been very quick to notice. So what's mm-hmm. your perspective on that really as someone who's been working across borders on different applications of technology? Well, so I think there's two things that you mentioned that that I want to speak on uh, there. One is you talk about, you know, bringing back that ownership and control, uh, but there is an economic factor to that, or there can be. Mm -hmm. Once you have control of your data and what you're generating, whether it's from your phone or from the IoT devices in your home or, you know, the different ways that you interact in life, you can also have the economic say in who gets access to that. So, I mean, you'll see conversations in the U.S. and other areas around universal basic income. 
And how can we scale that out? How can we make everybody have a mechanism for actually providing value in a global sense? And then how do we incentivize them or reward them for what they're providing? And I think when it comes down to data uh, and allowing the individual to start to have ownership and control, it becomes very natural to understand that. I'm producing data. I'm, I'm producing data from my car, from this conversation, and it's all being collected. But if I had to say in that, how much value am I actually generating? Uh, and how do I capitalize on that value? Because then we're all, regardless of how technically savvy or not we are, um, contributing in a way to this new economic situation. And we can be incentivized whether we're, you know, in the middle of a favela in Brazil or whether in an ivory tower in Italy, um, we all have the same capabilities to at least come to the table and say, I have something that I can bring to the table and I can make an impact in my life. And I can start to do that with my own power and not rely on organizations or governments or whatever to do that for me. Um, so there's definitely an economic side of that that I find very interesting and very um uh, I guess emotionally appealing um, because that that scale of impact is you know a grand utopian vision of course <clears throat> of what we can enable. Yeah, and I think these debates and questions are increasingly, particularly in 2021, they're no longer restricted to a small peak group of people. They're increasingly becoming a part of public consciousness. Yeah, with um, remote work exploding as well. I mean, that's a big part of that conversation now. Yeah, I mean, everyone's glued to their screens um, for, for reasons none of us could ever have predicted. Um, but Matthew, thanks so much for your time to, today. And just before you go, um, where can people find out more about the IOTA Foundation, um, you know, and, and more about your work? Yeah, so um, they can check out our website, uh, iota.org. Um, they can follow us on Twitter at iota.token. Uh, and our, we have a very active community. So if you go to our website and go to the Discord section, we have over 40 to 50,000 members currently that are constantly communicating and talking about ideas and finding people jobs and building new things. And it's very, very active. Um, so if you want to just get involved with the community and understand the technology better, that's a great resource for you to dig into and start to know the people and what we're building and, and figure out where you can actually come in and contribute to the space. Well, Matthew Yaga, thanks so much for joining the UAE Tech Podcast. Thanks, John, for your time. For more information on cybersecurity solutions in the UAE, be sure to check out Kaspersky's very own automated awareness platform at asap.kaspersky.com. That's asap.kaspersky.com. That offers training created by leading cybersecurity experts to help protect small enterprises who cannot withstand the blow of a cyber attack. Also remember that Kaspersky is offering listeners a discount using the promo code ALBAWABA, which can be used on any of Kaspersky's consumer products on kas.pr forward slash ALBAWABA. One more time, that's kas.pr forward slash ALBAWABA. You can also follow Kaspersky on social media at Kaspersky.